0: 哥林多後書 所以我们做基督的使者, Second Corinthians chapter five, 18 to 20. All this is from God who through, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the word of the Lord today. Good morning everyone, what a great time of worship this morning, let's, uh, let's continue in that mindset as we come to God's word, Th- this is also worship as we interact with God through his word. For those of you who don't know me, I'm John Wolfe, um, I'm here in Beijing, on an assignment with Boeing, coming up on on three years already. So I'm getting to be one of the old timers. That's a strange, strange feeling. But I'm here with, uh, with my wife, Debbie, and, and three of our kids, two of our kids back in Seattle just finishing up university to so be heading back for their graduation soon. So exciting times. If we spend time in God's word, you know, really seeking to know him better, to understand how he would have us live, seeking to know, you know, what is true, what is right, what is good. Then we're sure to come across some passages once in a while that that raise questions for us. And and often the answers aren't immediately present and that can be quite an uncomfortable feeling, unsettling. So sometimes, I think as a protective instinct, we just gloss over these passages, not going below the surface, not really engaging with them, ignoring the questions that are raised and, and missing an opportunity. But if we're willing to struggle with them a bit, you know, to dig a little bit deeper, to wrestle with them and seek understanding from God through His Spirit engaging in our hearts, then these passages in the end can become very meaningful for us. You know, the most meaningful. You know, even if, even if at the end of that struggling there are some questions that still remain unanswered and we just have to take a position, a posture of faith and say, Lord, you'll make it plain to me when I need to know. The passage we're going to look at this morning uh, from Mark 11, for me, is one of these passages. It's one that's really easy just to gloss over at the surface level. You know, not, not going below the surface and digging into it and not interacting with the questions that that should be raised as we encounter it. It's a brief passage it contains two stories and one of these is sandwiched within the other. And each of them, if we let it, will cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. And so I'd like to do that a little bit this morning. Let's start by reading through the uh, entire passage. It's from Mark 11, starting in verse 12. As on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, referring to Jesus, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to, withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you make yourself known to us, you make your ways known to us, your good ways through it. Lord, I, I pray as we sang this morning, you know, we, we welcome your spirit's present presence here. We we recognize, Lord, that that even as we do a good thing, spending time in Your Word, it will be for naught apart from You. Will go away, and even those maybe significant insights we gain, they'll they'll depart from us, and it won't change our lives. So, Lord, we ask this morning that uh, that You would be free to work in our hearts as we encounter your word. Pray that you would uh, prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the seeds that you would plant there. And Lord, we pray that those seeds would take root and that they would grow and that those plants would ultimately bear fruit for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to me, the way these, uh, these two stories that we just read, the story of the fig tree, and then the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, are intertwined with one another. The way that they're intertwined with one another raises the question of whether they're connected in some way. You know, and, and not just chronologically, obviously they're connected chronologically, but thematically. I think it probably would have been more natural to tell these stories separately, you know, tell the story of the fig tree all the way up to its conclusion, and then back up and tell the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. But Mark doesn't do that. Mac- Matthew actually does that in his gospel, although in, in reverse order, he tells the story of the cleansing of the temple and then the story of the fig tree. But we, we'll leave that question aside for a moment, the question of whether we're supposed to connect these two stories Thematically, and, and let's first spend some time focusing on the uh, the second story, the inner story, the story of Jesus cleansing of the temple. So, in this in this inner story, we're told, <coughs> excuse me, we're told that Jesus, after arriving at Jerusalem from Bethany, enters the temple area, and specifically enters the temple courts, the the outer courts of the temple. And this is also referred to as the, the court of the nations or the court of the Gentiles. And, and the reason for that is it's the, it's the one area of the temple, temple where the Gentiles could go, where the Gentile believers could gather and worship God and meet and pray together. There was a, there was a wall dividing that outer, the outer courts of the temple from the inner area of the temple. And the Gentiles were not allowed to go past that. I think, uh, you know, we just finished not long ago in a, a series on Ephesians, I think that Paul had this wall in, in mind when he talked in Ephesians 2 about how the Jews and Gentiles were being joined together in Christ, where he said that Jesus had, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. But when Jesus enters the temple courts, he finds people buying and selling there, items in the temple for offerings. You know, Specifically, it mentions um, pigeons or doves, depending on your translation, which was the typical offering of the poor. But at this time, there were apparently four markets on the Mount of Olives that were for this purpose, selling, selling doves and other items for sacrifice under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling can- council. And uh, some historians actually think this was a recent innovation the sale of animals in the temple was a recent innovation under Caiaphas the high priest and it was a, it was a way for him to share in the gain from the sale of these sacrifices and offerings because he did not uh, share in the proceeds from the sales that took place in those four markets but Jesus also finds money changers in the temple courts and they were there to change the Roman coins that people would have for the, uh, the shekels that were acceptable to pay as the temple tax. But Jesus drives them all out saying, is it not written, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this story raises a question for me, and the question is why? Why does Jesus do this? Why now? You know, surely Jesus had been in the temple before this and seen this going on probably many times. As a matter of fact, if we back up to the verse just before the passage we read this morning, we find that Jesus was in the temple the previous day, just after his triumphal entry and he did nothing. So why does Jesus decide to do this now? You know, it probably didn't have any lasting result. You know, lasting, didn't result in any lasting change at the temple. You know, so why does he even bother? Was he just having a bad day and this was the last straw seeing this going on in the temple and he reacted? I don't think so. Let's look a bit more closely at what Jesus says here from verse 17. It says, is it not, he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. At first glance, it appears that Jesus is quoting a single scripture, but this is actually two separate scriptures from the Old Testament that he's quoting, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. The Isaiah quote is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. But I want to go back and look at that passage in a little bit more context because as Jesus quotes that, this context would have come to mind for the Jews as they interacted with his comments. So Isaiah 56, and I'm going I'm to start back at verse 3 and read through verse 8. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the foreigners The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him, besides those already gathered. So, note, note the emphasis here on the foreigners, or you could say the Gentiles. You know, those who seek God, and the emphasis on them being given access to him. You know, God has a plan for the Gentiles, even then. God had a plan for the Gentiles as well. The Jeremiah quote is from Jeremiah 7, 11. But again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read some of the context and start with verse, verse one and read through that. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim, proclaim there his word and say, hear the word of the Lord all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, Commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these um, abominations? Has this house, which is called by my my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. "Go uh, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it, because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done these, all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave you, and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim." So Shiloh was the, uh, the central place of worship before Jerusalem for the Israelites. And it had been destroyed by this time at the hands of the Philistines. So it, it was in a state of destruction. And Jeremiah warns that if the Israelites continue in their ways, continue to go out and do what's evil in God's sight, and then trusting in the temple as some kind of a refuge, like a den of robbers, coming back to it and feeling safe, then then God is gonna cause this temple as well to be destroyed like he allowed Shiloh to be destroyed. But getting back to Mark 11, I think Jesus' actions and words on this occasion are intended as a much stronger message to the Jews than just some gentle rebuke like, you know, hey, you really shouldn't be doing this sort of thing, buying and selling in the temple. This, this appears to be, have been a very calculated action, not something Jesus did on the spur of the moment. You know, as I mentioned, he was at the temple the day before, and he, he did nothing. I think the words quoted from Jeremiah would have conveyed a much stronger, though some, still somewhat veiled message to the Jews a message of impending judgment. This this passage from Jeremiah was in the context of a judgment that was ultimately carried out. And it would have had specific reference to the temple, obviously. You know, the threefold repetition, this is the temple, this is the temple. You know, looking to that as a refuge after they go out and sin. Of course, Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled, you know, hundreds of years before this hundreds of years earlier when the Babylonians invaded Israel, invaded Judah and carried the Israelites into exile. However, uh, Jesus speaks plainly to his disciples a couple chapters after our Mark 11 passage, chapter chapter 13 in Mark, he speaks plainly of a coming judgment involving the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and ultimately this takes place at the hands of the Romans in AD 70. Um, James Shun was actually just in Jerusalem this last week. And, and I know you shared a picture of some of those stones that have been cast by the Romans from the temple buildings and, and left, to, left to sit where they, where they, where they were. It's, it's an amazing testament. I'm sure they leave that there for a different reason, but, but really it's, it's a testament of, of that judgment on the Jews because of how they had treated their God, how they had treated one another, how they had treated those nations that were in darkness around them. Although this coming judgment would be in response to many, many failures of the Jews, I, want, I think the words quoted from Isaiah allude to a, a particular failure which is a significant reason for this judgment, and that's what I want to focus on primarily this morning. The words that Jesus quoted from Isaiah were not just to make the point that God's house, the temple, should be a house of prayer, but that it should be a house of prayer for all nations. Mark specifically quotes that part. It's left out of other accounts in the Gospels. It is to be a house of prayer for all nations, Uh, This emphasis is even more clear in the broader context of the passage that I read in Isaiah where there was so much emphasis on the foreigner having access to God, the believing foreigner, that that foreigner that would be be faithful to him and worship him, that they should have access and will have access to God. I think Jesus' cleansing of the temple was prompted not only by the fact that, that buying and selling were going on in the temple area, but also by the fact that this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. It was the only part of the temple, as I mentioned, where the Gentile believers had access to go and meet together and worship God and pray together. And this was being taken away from them as that area was being used to buy and sell and change money. Turning the court of the Gentiles into a market was, was very reflective of the Jews' attitude toward the Gentiles at that time. They viewed them with contempt and hatred, referring to them as Gentile dogs and looking down on them from a position of superiority. But this was contrary to the calling that Israel had received from God. You know, going way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was later renewed with Isaac and then with Jacob. You know, looking at the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3 God said to Abraham I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you you know although God did call Israel and form them in a nation in order to be a blessing to them in order to bless them I mean, that's, that's certainly true. They were also to be God's instrument of blessing to the peoples of the earth, to all of the peoples of the earth. And this they had completely lost sight of. And I think this was a major reason for the impending judgment on, on the Jews in Jerusalem. For God so loved the world John 3.16 says. But what about the fig tree? The outer story in our passage in Mark 11, starting in verse 12. So in this story, Jesus is leaving Bethany with his disciples. He's hungry. And he sees a fig tree in leaf in the distance. Seeing it in leaf, there's some hope that it contains figs. He goes to find out if there's, if there's any fruit on it. But when he reaches the tree, the fig tree, he finds none, only leaves. But Mark explains that it was not the season for figs. But Jesus curses the fig tree saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then the next morning, according to verse 20, they come across this fig tree again and it's withered from the roots. But we read this and we wonder why Jesus would curse a fig tree for not having fruit. You know, particularly when it wasn't the season for figs. Even if it was the season for figs, is the tree to blame? You know, maybe it's the soil's fault. (laughs) Bad soil. Or maybe somebody is supposed to tend it and wasn't doing a very good job of that. Maybe it's his fault. But I think when we look at this story, the story of the fig tree in connection with Jesus' actions in the temple and the words he said in the temple as he cleansed it. We can see more clearly, see it more clearly for what it is, and I think ultimately we see it as a symbolic act announcing a coming judgment upon the Jews. You know, maybe Jesus had Micah's prophecy in mind as he cursed the fig tree from Micah 7, 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires, no early fig that my soul desires. So the Jews are the fig tree. God planted the tree, he tended it very carefully and lovingly. But season after season, when he searches its branches for fruit, he finds none. The tree's in leaf, it has the appearance of fruit, But upon closer inspection, there's no fruit. The fig tree that does not bear figs is good for nothing, unless maybe for firewood. So what does all this have to do with us? Is it just a a history lesson on what led to the judgment upon the Jews in Jerusalem in AD 70 at the hands of Rome and the destruction of the temple? I don't think so. just as god blessed israel in order that they would be an instrument of blessing to the to the world to the nations so now having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in christ he looks to us to bear the fruit of his kingdom you know individually and and corporately as a church as well ultimately god's covenant with israel is fulfilled in christ through whom the world is blessed but as it says in that 2 Corinthians 5 passage that was read for us earlier, God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. You know, I could point to many other passages that make this, this same point. You know, the Sermon on the Mount being, being one of them where Jesus calls us to be salt of the earth. Light of the world, a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand giving light to the area around it. In Revelation 2, where Christ addresses the church in Ephesus, he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. As those who have been blessed in Christ, we need to continue to bear the fruit of God's kingdom or our lampstand will be taken away and God's light will no longer shine through us. God will place our lampstand somewhere else where it will give out light. So what does God find when He looks at your life? Does He find fruit on your branches? Are you a willing instrument of blessing to the world in His hands? When I examine my own life in this regard, although I think my branches do have fruit on them, it's too little. And some of the fruit that's there is pretty pitiful. It's all withered, wrinkled, dried up, lacking in quality. And, and when I ask myself before God why this is, there are a few things that come to my mind that I think are not too uncommon. This is not an exhaustive list, obviously. Just a few things that came quickly to my mind. Um, first, I don't, think I, I don't think I appreciate all that I've received in Christ as much as I should. I don't think I fully understand that reality of the blessings I've received in Christ. I tend to take them for granted. And I've forgotten what it's like to be without God, without hope in this dark world. And when I look at others who clearly don't deserve God's blessing, I forget that I did not deserve God's blessing either. And yet it was freely given by grace, not because of anything I'd done to deserve it, a gift from God. When Paul talks about the calling to be Christ's ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5, as those to whom he has committed his message of reconciliation, he talks a little bit about his motivation in this, which should be our motivation as well. He says, Christ's love compels us If we understand Christ's love, we we can't help but to, in turn, you know, just as we have freely received that gift, to freely give, to let our light shine, to let Christ's light shine through us so that others can share in that gift. If we fully appreciate the love we've received in Christ, we're compelled to love others in the same way. And that, it can be hard to do. We need to be careful. You know, the Jews had become very antagonistic toward the Gentiles because they were, such, they were, always, they were always in a position of enmity. And, and we can be the same way with the world around us. You know, we're, we're in a bit of a, a battle with the world for the sake of righteousness. You know, fighting against that unrighteousness that is so prevalent and, and growing in the world around us. But we need to be careful not to be so caught up in this battle that we're no longer willing to be God's instrument, of blessing to the world as He's called us to be. The second thing that came to mind for me when considering why I'm not bearing fruit as I should is that I'm far too self-focused and self-absorbed. According to Philippians 2, Christ is to be our example in this, and it's a high example. It's a very challenging example. It's as though being in very nature God, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and humbled himself and became obe- obedient to death, even, a, even death on a cross. But if I'm absorbed with my own interest and not focused on the needs of others seeking to serve them, then obviously I can't bear the fruit of the kingdom that God's talking about here. The last thing I'll mention that came quickly to my mind when reflecting on this is that I, I hesitate to share the good news of the gospel with some people because I think deep down I don't trust in its power to save them through the work of the Holy Spirit. They're too far gone, they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't pay attention. In Romans 1:16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Do we truly believe that? I love Mark's testimony during the baptism service last week. You know, God had clearly been at work preparing his heart and he used a simple piece of paper with his name written upon it, his friend Chris's prayer list to draw him into the kingdom. When it comes to salvation, it's God who does the heavy lifting not us, it doesn't depend on us. And God is able to do things that, from our perspective, are so clearly impossible. So what about you? Is there anything preventing you from be- becoming, from being fully available, being fully available to God for his use as an instrument of blessing to those around you? Do you fully grasp and appreciate the spiritual blessings you've received in Christ? Do you look beyond your own needs and interests intently enough to see ways you can be used by God to bless those around you, those who are stumbling around in the darkness of this world, which is dark indeed? You know, seeing ways that you can be used by God to shine the light of Christ into that darkness in their lives. Do you trust in the power of the gospel to save those to whom you are convinced from a worldly perspective will never respond positively to it? Do you limit yourself by relying on your own wisdom and strength rather than allowing God to work through you and bear fruit through you as you remain in him, as you remain in the vine in Christ? It's only by remaining in Christ that we can bear fruit. We can't bear fruit from within ourselves. We are God's temple individually and collectively as his church. So what's going on in our temple courts that prevents us from becoming effective ministers of reconciliation to the father, faithfully holding out the word of life to those who are perishing, shining God's light in the darkness that surrounds us. We're the fig tree now that God looks to for those early figs, those first ripe figs? But are we too occupied with putting out leaves to make us look good from a distance, to be bothered with producing real fruit? fruit? They're hard questions. And obviously I could develop this further, we could talk about what that fruit looks like, but I'll leave that for someone else. And, and hopefully let you, let you struggle with that for in, within, within your own life. You know, before God, you know, ask him, what is it, Lord, in me that's keeping me from bear the, bearing the fruit that you would desire? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I think all of us who have been blessed through Christ who have been made your children, who have been invited into your kingdom. Lord, we, we know we've received a great gift. And Lord, we recognize that having freely received, we, we want to freely give. But there's so many things that hold us back. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to each one of us this morning. about those specific areas that are blocking your fruit from being produced through us. And help us, Lord, give us grace. I pray that you would deal with those areas in our lives and help us to truly be salt and light to this world and the darkness around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.